0: So when I got ready to come this morning, the last thing I put on my pile of things to bring was a, um, a, br- uh, a, a brochure of uh, um, a lecture series of offerings this spring from um, a spirituality group in the South Bay, it sounds like a wonderful group, it's a Center for Spiritual Enlightenment and uh, it's uh, people who follow the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda and it is in its um, direction Paramahansa Yogananda was a renowned and respected meditation teacher um, in the yoga tradition um, who died quite some decades ago now, middle of the last century I think. And um, the teachings are really open teachings of spirit and love and very open to um, it's ecumenical thinking so that the people who come for their lecture series are um, teachers from all kinds of spiritual traditions. And and what interested me very much is the name of their uh, magazine or the subtitle of their magazine, it announces their name, and then it says, Awaken to the One Truth Known by Many Names. And I thought, well that would be an interesting thing to talk about. What is the One Truth Known by Many Names? What is it? Is there one truth, Um, how do you find it? it's actually, I, I, as I thought about it this morning, I thought about um, so many difficulties uh, have happened in the world and ha- are currently happening in the world because of clashes of views and this is the truth and that's the truth and my truth is more true <laughs> than your truth. How do you actually find out what's true? I was thinking about uh, some of the things that we say in Buddhism. Uh, that uh, that we say, just like they're absolutely true, that the nature of mind is brilliant and pure, uh, shining forth, uh, loving kindness, uh, compassion, uh, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. So it's a lovely thing. You, you see the four buildings up here that are named Metta, Karuna, Mudita, and Upayaka. Uh, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, and you think that's lovely. Uh, Is that the nature of mind? And you look out in the world and you see there's a lot of trouble happening in the world these days. Is that a story that we tell ourselves because we would like it to be true or is it actually true? Is it our experience? Um, It is mine sometimes. I have felt and continue to feel comfortable. I feel like I'm telling the truth when I say, you know, when I'm not bewildered and overwrought and too tired or too frightened or too disappointed uh, or to anything else that makes my mind confused and constricted, I really am pretty friendly, and uh, <laughs> I, you know, I don't think, and I don't think I'm peculiar in that way. I don't think it's unique to me. I think human beings are, by and large, as a species, pretty friendly. We're nice to each other when we're not frightening each other. You know, I, I think that's the bottom line truth: when we don't frighten each other, if the whole world would just say stop. No more frightening each other. But is that really true? Am I seeing it out of uh, more of a hope than a truth? Or that the Dalai Lama says, here's a fundamental truth. He says, everybody wants to be happy. You think that's true? Yeah, I think that's true. And then you say, well, look at this person who's doing these terrible things, you know? But then I could turn that around and say, well, on some level, they have the feeling that this terrible thing, if they just get it done, is going to make them happy. It's a wrong thought about what will make them happy in the end. But, but am I just, again, making it come around so it says what's true, what I think is true? Or hatred never ceases by hatred. That's a line from the Dhammapada. Um, I think that's true. You think that's true? It just adds to it. But what about anger? Mm-hmm. Um, is a, oh, this was a part of the instruction this morning that I gave it when we were starting to meditate and I thought oh, I'll have to talk about this later. Um, I, don't, uh, I said, uh, and I heard everybody like a little laugh went through the whole group. I said, it's so hard to keep the mind contented and everybody with a little trickle of laughing went through. It is, you know, like you get it all into a shape and then something happens and we get annoyed. You know, it could be the least little thing and we get annoyed. It could be a big thing and then the big thing happens and then you think if only this gets cured I'll never be annoyed by the small things again. But then all of a sudden you get annoyed <laughs> by the small things. You open the door and the Sunday paper didn't get delivered. You know, some extremely minor thing in annoyance arises. Well, does it mean that annoyance should never arise or that you should never express anger? The, there's a, a line in, um, um, in the beginning of uh, the first line of chapter six of a book called uh, A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. It's written by Shanti Deva, a sixth-century Buddhist commentator. The first line of it says, one moment of anger erases eons of good karma. Eons of good karma. So uh, <laughs> so actually, <laughs> no, it's true. Uh, uh, this, is, this is the latest Shambhala Sun, and maybe this is a little self-serving, but I am currently now writing a column for the Shambhala Sun. I'm very proud of myself. You'll be proud too. So <laughs> this is the second column and it just arrived yesterday. Did it arrive in your mailbox as well? Uh oh, okay. <laughs> um, this is the second article, the second time I've written for them. Um, and I'm supposed to write articles on psyche and spirit. And this is about the most frequently asked question, does spiritual practice mean that we never get angry? Mm-hmm. Then it says what I think about it. But anyway, at the end, it says uh, about Shantideva Deva, uh, and uh, that I frequently tell that to a group of people, and then the group of people usually asks, uh, "Do you really believe that?" And uh, I say, "I don't know. You know, I wonder what it means." I pay a lot of attention when I get angry. Um, eons of good karma. Eons of good karma. I pay a lot of attention when I get angry because I. I know it's calling for something. So what I really want to talk about is how hard it is these days in the world not to get angry about what's going on. Because I'm really, I'm really concerned, the world situation is very bad. I think, I don't know if it's badder than other times, but um, I'm so dismayed by what's happening in India and Pakistan threatening each other to death in the Middle East, they're threatening each other to death. All the other places in the world where people are threatening each other to death. And I'm so um, hoping that it's true that the nature of mind is caring and that the world is going to pull itself up. Passions are really hard to control. though. I was uh, I was in New York last week and uh, uh, needed to think about giving a talk about Memorial Day that was coming up, and uh, a spiritual talk about Memorial Day. So I thought about it a lot. And I thought about the fact that uh, Memorial Day has become, when people say, what are you doing for Memorial Day? They say, well, we're going up to Tahoe for three days, or uh, I'm gonna go buy a piano because Yamaha's having a blowout three day sale, or, you know we're going to take the, uh, the, the boat down and put it in the boat dock it's the three-day weekend it's one of the three-day weekends and I was thinking the fact that memorial day is the three-day weekend or memorial day which used to be called decoration day is a day really when uh, honoring people who died people who died because human beings haven't figured out yet how to deal with their passions without killing each other is really people who died extra. There, there are days in the, um, there are times in the Hebrew calendar I know when you go to the cemetery to visit the graves of the people in your family before the new year, but mostly they're people who died because they were alive, you know, and that death, life always ends in dying and we hope sometime in a good time, at, at after enough time. And we always hope that people don't die of an accident, stepping out in front of a car or um, skiing accidentally into a tree or something. But, and those are terrible deaths as well. And we, di- we really feel bad about untimely deaths. We like to think <laughs> that people, you know, somebody says, my father just died, he was 92. We feel all right about it somehow, you know, 92. You miss the presence of that person in your life. I was just figuring out we're coming up on my father's 91st birthday. And every once in a while I think about, you know, he would have got a very big kick out of his grandchildren. He would have really enjoyed that. But, you know, it's okay. I remember him sweetly and I see him in a few of my grandchildren. So, But the people who died because people were angry and didn't know how to talk about it, enough. I was thinking about with three-year-olds, I watch my children, we didn't know how to say this, but my children say to their children, you need to use words now. You you cannot hit. You cannot lie down and kick and scream. Try to use your words. And we're pretty clear that three-year-olds should try to use their words. And then, when you grow up into people, then we change the mind and we say now it's time to bomb or to go in and kill the people who won't do it our way. I um, was thinking about um, uh, the, the notion uh, that human beings could do it another way. And they shall turn their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, shall not again know war you know, we know that. I mean, but that's twenty—that's that's, that's twenty five hundred years old. That's Isaiah. That's about the time of the Buddha. So it's somehow we get the idea that that's a possibility for human beings, but we haven't done it yet. We say, okay, we're going to have one more war, and this war is going to really teach people how to stop fighting. Yeah. And, and you know, one of the things that I thought about yesterday a lot—that this particular question about—is it ever Okay, to do a violent action in order to bring about the cause of peace. I thought about it because I read. Um, so I, I read a book excerpt from uh, uh, the latest Smithsonian magazine. Do you any any of you get Smithsonian? It's a great magazine. If you join Smithsonian Institute every year, it's not very expensive. It's in Washington. When you go you can get in for a reduced fee or whatever. That's not why. They send you a monthly magazine with articles about everything. And it's tremendously interesting. Anyway, this is about the, the second inaugural, ad- Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address. There's just been a book written by uh, Ronald White, who's in a store inn, um, about the, uh, the period of time just leading up to the election the second election of Abraham Lincoln when the Civil War was just coming to an end, uh, and uh, the preparations, go, the climate of opinion, what was going on, the tensions in this country, and leading up to uh, a, a piece of his second inaugural address, which is a little bit longer than the Gettysburg Address, which I had gotten off the internet because I wanted to find a particular line in that. But uh, he goes on to say that the Gettysburg Address, which everyone remembers, it uh, is rather for us the living to dedicate ourselves uh, to continue the task so that these lives shall not be lost in vain. Remember that at the end of the Gettysburg Address? I'll find that for you, we'll start from that. Because really what I, I, I keep thinking to myself, hoping to myself, is that the lesson that we're gonna come out with in the end is the rededication of ourselves to making our own hearts good that what's the uh, that uh, that in uh, 40 minutes from now where I hope to have arrived so I tell you now so I make sure <laughs> that I get there is that there are two possibilities either it's a mistake and it's not the 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 inherent tendency of the heart to express itself in friendly friendliness and compassion and caring or it is. If it is, we've forgotten to live that way, we have to go back that way. And if it's not, we have to change ourselves so it becomes that way, because it's not working the way it is. <laughs> so one way or another, we have to somehow rededicate ourselves to that possibility of transforming love, the, the anger that comes up in us, into some useful gesture, not a loving gesture. I'll tell you a funny thing, but I want to read you this little piece. It is rather for us, the living, that we here be dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead, we take increased devotion to that cause for which they here gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. And then it finishes. I want to finish that by saying, those dead and those dead and those dead and those dead, and those those people today and tomorrow, still dying, in the middle of dying, and figured out how to do it, that they don't keep on dying and those who do don't die in vain, that somehow we get it, that there's another way to do it. And we have to get it by getting it in ourselves. I'll, I'll read you the other piece of Abraham Lincoln, and then in case I don't read you the haikus from Brooklyn, you tell me that's what I should do next, because it's the best thing to pick up the mood after this. <coughs> Here is the week of uh, the second inaugural. First of all, did you know how many people died in the Civil War? Do you have any idea how many people died in the Civil War? 623,000 men died in the Civil War. One out of 11 men of service age was killed between 1861 and 1865. Comparisons with Americans killed in other wars brings the horror home. In World War I, the number killed was 117,000. World War II, 405,000. In the Korean War, the death toll was 54,000. In the war in Vietnam, the number of Americans killed was 58,000. Death in the Civil War almost equals the number killed in all subsequent wars. It's Americans fighting with Americans. Had World War II produced the same proportion of deaths as the Civil War did, it would have more than two and a half million men would have died. When Washington, when uh, Abraham Lincoln came to Washington to deliver that inaugural address, the tensions, the war was ending, but the tensions and the animosity between the warring factions was still so high. I want to read you a piece of the description of the streets in Washington. You think if this sounds modern to you. Extraordinary precautions were being taken. All roads. To Washington had been heavily picketed for some days and the bridges were being patrolled with extra vigilance. The 8th Illinois cavalry was sent out from Fairfax courthouse with orders to look for suspicious characters. The problem was greatly complicated by the presence of a large number of Confederate deserters who now roamed the Capitol. There were sharpshooters on the buildings ringing inaugura- the inaugural ceremonies and plainclothes detectives roved the, c- the city keeping track of questionable persons. That sounds remarkably contemporary, doesn't it? Scary. And come to the end, he was the scary part for me. It was actually very, I don't know, gave me a positive thought. I don't know if I'm going to call this touching or... The inaugural parade itself had it talked about the procession of fire brigades and civil and, and cavalry brigades. As far down the parade line was something that had never before been witnessed as a presidential inauguration. Four companies of black soldiers, members of the 45th Regiment United States Colored Troops marched smartly. Immediately following was a lodge of African-American Odd Fellows, a fraternal organization. The crowd cheered. One of the questions though that they ask in this article was did anybody believe during the war, before the war, or after the war, that winning the war would end prejudice? No? It made some legislation, but it didn't end prejudice. We're still fighting wars of prejudice on all levels, about everything about people, about the color of their skin or the background that they've come. Somebody told me that they heard, somebody told me yesterday, somebody who told me that his, spirit, somebody whose spiritual practice I'm involved with knowing about, someone whose spiritual practice I admire a lot, told me that part of his spiritual practice is uh, listening to Rush Limbaugh on, on, on the radio. And I, I, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't, no, I'm sorry, I, I already did. But I should have said, listen to inflammatory talk radio because he, because his practice is to listen and to see if he cannot become infuriated. He's using it as like people do Tong Lin practice where they breathe in the imperfections of the world and try to breathe out loving kindness. So I shouldn't have said that person. So I will not tell you the person he said, but that, that he said is a piece of cake. He said, I got used to that. So now I have revved up to so-and-so, so-and-so. I'm not saying this person's name. I revved up to so-and-so, so-and-so who I listened to he said, now this really pushes the button. He said, could not believe it. Last week, this person said, over national syndicated radio, millions of people out there listening to this. What? The only thing that will keep this country safe is racial profiling. I said, that's not true. didn't say that. He said, yes, he did. We're not finished with that. There are millions of people out listening to that. This is the second inaugural address and this is the part that worried me a little bit, a lot. Because parts of it are, are tremendously stirring. One eighth of, uh, this is the middle, of uh, the, the whole of it is quite short and I won't read you the whole of it, anyway. But here is Lincoln talking about uh, an eighth of the country, an eighth of the population, the slaves. Uh, these slaves constitute a particular and powerful interest everyone knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war to strengthen perpetuate and extend this interest was the object for which the insurgents would rend the union even by war while the government claimed no right to do more than restrict the territorial enlargement of it neither party expected for the war the magnitude of the duration which had already attained neither anticipated that the cause of the conflict might cease with, or even before, the conflict itself should cease. Several sentences later, both read the same Bible. This is really an important point. Everybody thinks their cause is just. Do you know the second paragraph, uh, the second stanza of the Star Spangled Banner? Do you know that? Do you remember it from grade school? Did you have to learn that? Mm-hmm. For thus be it ever, I can't sing. But you know, know, oh say, can you see, there's a second stanza. Anybody knows it? This could be like the million dollar question. Maybe you have to have gone to school long enough ago. For thus be it ever where free men shall stand. And I'm missing the next stanza, but then it says, and conquer we must when our cause it is just. Let this be our motto, in God do we trust and say, whoa, wait a minute. This is the anthem that I conquer we must when our cause it is just. Is that true ever? Okay, back to Abraham Lincoln. I I spent a very upset day. You're getting me in a good moment because it resolved itself by the time I got here. I know the answers. (laughs) I wouldn't have been ready to talk otherwise. It may seem strange that men should ask a just God's assistant in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces, but let us not judge lest we be judged. The prayers of both could not be answered, and neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes, and goes on to quote, actually a Bible quote, Woe unto the world because of its offenses. Then he goes on to say, Woe unto the world, because if, if the world is unfolding, now I'm going to try to say it in karmic terms. I'm going to shift over from uh, a, a god that's willing it then to a karma that's making it. Do you ever uh, read the Bhagavad Gita? Remember the Bhagavad Gita? There's a battle in the Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita is a Hindu text in the midst of the Mahabharata. Uh, Arjuna finds himself on a battlefield uh, and he's uh, committed to this battle leading the troops. And on the other side, massed against him are, as he looks across the battlefield, his uncles and his cousins and relatives of his. And he says to uh, Krishna, his charioteer, who is actually God incarnate in that story, what shall I do? These are my relatives over there. How can I fight with them? And the message he's given is that you fight without, um, the, the fight has to come without a personal, without personal regard. If they hate them, you know, and you can't love them. You just have to do what's right to make the world right. This world, this war is happening. So then you'd be the best charioteer and the best warrior you can because that's what has to happen. So this is a very worrisome part of yesterday because I thought to myself, does war ever have to happen? I thought about the Civil War, presumably ending that injustice, but it didn't end it. It killed a lot of people. It didn't end it. Uh, was it the beginning of setting the stage for uh, uh, Elizabeth Stanton saying women have to be given equal rights? Was it the beginning of Martin Luther King being able to say we have to do it again that war but we have to do it without fighting? Did it have to happen that way for this? You know, I don't know. So here is Lincoln, back to him um fondly do we hope fervently do we pray that the mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away and this is the part that was worrisome yet if god wills that it continues until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk and until every drop of blood shall be drawn drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn but with the sword as was said three thousand years ago so must it be said The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. With malice towards none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who will have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. That night at a reception at the White House, the President sought out abolitionist uh, Frederick Douglass. I saw you in the crowd today listening to my inaugural address, Lincoln said. How did you like it? Douglass demurred. I must not detain you with my poor opinion, he said, but Lincoln pressed on. There is no man in the country whose opinion I value more than yours, he said. I want to know what you think of it. Mr. Lincoln, Douglass replied, that was a sacred effort. Forty-one days later, on April 15, 1865, Lincoln was dead. And he was shot, you know that, by, by John Wilkes Booth who was mad enough to shoot him. You know that mad enough to shoot him causes me to read you this poem which I copied off the wall of a museum in New York. Um, this is the Museum of the City of New York is now having a um, an exhibit of... Um, Uh, the documentation of the Arab American immigration into the United States that happened primarily around the beginning of the 20th century. It's a big wave of Eastern Europeans who came, big wave of uh, Irish that came, big wave of uh, Jews that came from Germany and Eastern Europe and a big wave of Arab immigrants that came from uh, Iraq, Lebanon, um, it was me- not meant, it was curated to be put up somewhat later, it was planned I think for this year, but after nine eleven, it was put up earlier in an effort really to um, anticipate and counter and be an antidote to the kind of, um, um, to the anticipated rise of anti-Arab feelings. Um, I looked at that uh, that uh, the show at uh, the the exhibit. I was tremendously moved by it. They looked like uh, they looked like a couple of weeks before. I'd been in Ellis Island and looked at pictures of immigrants from all the countries that came through. At the, and they all came early in the mostly of the people who came early in the 20th century who came through Ellis Island. And you look at the people. I look at the people who uh, look like my people, who are distinguishable. Uh, They're not really distinguishable, come to think of it. They look like everybody else. I looked at these Arab American families. They look like the Jews from Eastern Europe. They had uh, big families. Um, Everybody posed with their best clothing, looking straight at the camera. And you can see a, a, a mama and a papa and all these children and probably many others that didn't make it or didn't survive their early years. But so hopeful, all of them coming. And you look at them and I was thinking about everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants to have a life. Everybody wants to be free. Could see in these faces, the same faces of hopefulness that I saw in all of the faces in Ellis Island. It's just people. And at the end of this whole exhibit of people, there are also people uh, people interested in becoming Americans and people interested, as we all are, in um, so Uh, maintaining some connection to our own particular roots. We do have a feeling of roots Um, whether it's ethnic roots or religious roots or cultural roots or whatever it is we have a sense of peoplehood because I could see in the little uh, essays that uh, that went along with these pictures in the exhibit people were saying I really hope to make it in America there's a new life here for us and I want my children to go to Greek school after school Or, you know, I want to, we speak Arabic at home so that they won't forget how to speak. Everybody wants to do that. It's not because they don't want to be with everybody else or that they don't really admire the American dream they came, but because there's a sense of peoplehood that somehow comes in our genes, I suppose. But at the end of the whole exhibit, there was a poem by a contemporary Palestinian American poet, woman, and this is the poem. It was called First Writing After, and it was written last fall. First, please God, let it be a mistake. The pilot's heart failed, the plane's engines died. Then, please God, let it be a nightmare, wake me now. Please God, after the second plane, please don't let it be anyone who looks like my brothers. I do not know how bad a life has to break in order to kill. I have never been so hungry that I have willed hunger. I have never been so angry as to want to control a gun over a pen, not really. Even as a woman, even as a Palestinian, even as a broken human being, not that broken. Is that amazing? The question I think comes down to when we get really frightened, we're going to get really frightened and make a mistake and hit back. Oh we're gonna get really frightened and become absolutely brokenhearted and be converted to peace. What's gonna be the big enough scare? You know that this week or last one of them in The New Yorker. This is this is one of those pictures where in on T V they would say what you're about to see is something difficult you might want not want to look. But I'll pass this around if you want to. This is a a panoramic view of the uh, what was the World Trade Center, uh, taken on September 25th, 2001. You look at it; it looks like Armageddon, really, which is really—it's an amazing photo. This whole the this whole article is called "A Hole in the City," and. uh, I'll pass it around if you want to look at it, the, the, the photographs are amazing. One of the things that I was thinking about, and I don't know the answer to it, I was going to bring more questions and answers for you, one of the things I was thinking about is um, the effect of memorials. This is part of what I was thinking about, about Memorial Day. They're talking a lot about what to do with that site in New York, or should they build another building there, should they make a park there. Is there anything you can do? Uh, uh. I don't remember that piece of the Gettysburg Address. Do you remember? In a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men living and dead who struggled here have hallowed it far beyond our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here while it can never forget what they did here. One of the things that I think about a lot is the role of remembering and the role of forgetting. You know, that It seems to me it's such a complex issue that <coughs> what we choose to remember makes so much of a difference. What if we, it's an alarming article. Uh, you know, I seem to be today like the collector of articles. I think it's what happens when I go away for a long time and then I come home and read all my email. There's an article by Abraham Rosenthal in the New York News last week that's gone through. Uh, He wrote for many years a column for the New York Times. He's a wonderful, gifted journalist. His literary style is tremendous. He's an old man now and he's either a, a Holocaust survivor himself or his family just got out just before, but old enough to have lived through the Second World War as a as a German Jew and lived through. And it talks about it's a frightening article. It says, "Wake up!" This is talking about the rise of anti-Semitism in the last six months. You know that, uh, along with profiling and ethnic profiling, the tremendous rise of anti-Semitism not only in France which we read about in the newspapers and heard on TV, not only in Germany which we are also hearing about, but um, my congregation in Santa Rosa was um, vandalized some last week. Windows were broken, the letters on the sign in front announcing the name of the congregation were taken off and then re-put back like anagrams into uh, bad words. this is in Santa Rosa, California, where the ecumenical council, the churches get together and it, it, it have con- you know, dedicated Santa Rosa to be a hate-free community. Not quite, you know, the one de- but the question is, do I look at that and say, oh, we are one degree away or do I say, we are one degree away, let's be careful to push it back to no degrees, you know, to, to back, to, back to good. If it's just under the surface, what if it's true that xenophobia is just under the surface, that one false move and we won't like anybody who isn't like us? Maybe that's true. Maybe that's the way human beings get startled, whether that's a sign to take up arms or whether it's a sign to say, okay, increased vigor to get everybody vigilant. Here's this Rosenthal article, which I won't read to you, but his point is worry, wake up. He said, I am in a place where I remember that Germans, Jews and not Jews, during the rise of Nazism, said, uh, this can't be happening. You know, we're a civilization, you know. It can't possibly last. This is a a current passing mistake. People will correct it. Uh, You know, we don't have to leave. And it'll be all right, because sane heads will prevail. Uh, All the things that I, take courage from. Now the gist of Rosenthal's article is watch it. And at the end he, um, he quotes uh, Martin Nimola who was a Protestant theologian in uh, Germany at the time who said, in Germany, they first came for the communists and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the Jews and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Catholics, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Catholic. Then they came for me, and by that time, there was no one left to speak up. So, scary, what should we speak up about? Almost at the end of the difficult ones. You may not be aware that, uh, there's another email, 120 European university professors have recently called for a moratorium on cultural and research links with Israel. Um, Moratorium on faculty members and anyone else coming. (coughs) Boycott of Israeli academics as a chilling moment reminiscent to the dark years leading to the Holocaust. And then a file about what's going on. Joint research, a moratorium on scientific and cultural cooperation with scholars. Um, Restricting academic ties. Some of those research projects, by the way, are in water resource management, cancer treatment, desalination, regional disease eradication. One (coughs) below the surface, all the xenophobia comes back. You know, I didn't know what to do with myself. What would you have done in this particular instance? While I was in New York, I went to see The Producers. I got tickets months ago. So everybody knows what The Producers do. Producers is a Broadway show. It was originally a movie. It was a movie made into a Broadway show. Uh, The movie is uh, 20 years old, Zero Mostel and Gene Wilder. Um, I own the video of the movie. I think it's hysterical. Um, um, uh, The the gist of the plot is uh, Zero Mostel is a um, aging, failing Broadway um, show producer whose shows are all failing. And his last show has just flopped and uh, into his office comes Gene Wilder, then Young, who is the accountant Who's been sent by the accounting firm to check the books, which he's been laundering and doctoring. And, um, and uh, Gene Wilder plays a kind of um, really mild mannered, frightened um, kind of guy. And uh, he's musing out loud about these books, which are laundered and doctored. And, um, meantime, part of the joke, which is part of the story I want to tell you is, is this a joke? Is that um, the producer? has uh, been getting people to back his shows by seducing old women, little old women. So it's kind of a mockery. It's a mockery of everyone's sexuality, truth to tell. It's a mockery of his, it's a mockery of the sexuality of little old women. If you, if you have any nerve available to get mocked, it gets mocked in that particular <laughs> play uh, because he's got uh, apparently a whole list of little old women on whom he bestows sexual favors uh, who support his shows and here comes Gene Wilder who was going through the books and said you know if you really produced an enormous flop but got a tremendous amount of backing the show could close the first night you could take the rest of the money and go have the rest of your life in South America and (laughs) so the producer says a good idea let's do it the in essence they do it together and it's been made into a musical and when it and Mel Brooks produced the musical directed it when it opened on Broadway a year and a half ago the critics said it was fantastic. There hadn't been a show like that in years. You could not get a ticket to it. People were scalping the tickets for a tremendous amount of money. Finally, I happened to get two tickets to a matinee, not scalp, regular tickets for two weeks ago. I went to the movies, uh, to the show. The choreography is amazing. The, the songs are amazing. The acting is amazing. It isn't even Nathan Hale and uh, uh, Matthew Broderick anymore. There's two very good people. And it mocks everything as the truth. The, the, and the point of the play, and this is what I keep going over my mind. The point of the play is that these two folks sit down with larceny in their mind and heart, and they say, let's write the most offensive play possible. It has to offend everybody so that it will close the first night. And then they write, the totally, to- they take every raw nerve on everything. And they're so over the top offensive that you can it's funny, it's really funny. <laughs> um, I thought. Anyway, I was having a great time. I went, it's funny, the choir. It's outrageous in the extreme and, well, it's outrageous in the extreme. It makes fun of everything. Everybody's sexuality. Everybody's everything. Uh, its uh, leading person is Adolf Hitler. Uh, it, it just completely, so hugely offensive. <laughs> and we're all having a great time because it's so funny. And in the um, in the intermission, I go down to the ladies' room. Everybody's buzzing. Everybody's excited. I'm standing online line to go in, and I say to the woman in front of me, "It's fabulous, isn't it?" And she said, "As a matter of fact, I'm not enjoying it at all." Said, ah. She said, "I find it highly offensive." So first of all, I feel bad, you know, uh, you know. Like all of a sudden, first of all, I felt worried. Like maybe I was somehow, in some way, <coughs> morally incorrect. I would actually been having a good time. So but, but I didn't know what else to say. Anyway, fortunately, we at that point the line moved on, and I went <laughs> and I went upstairs. I went back to my seat, and I'm look. The karma is so peculiar. In this whole theater, she's sitting in front of me. <laughs> she has a seat right over here, in the whole theater. And I sit, I come back and I sit down, here she is, and she's with a man who looks like he's come with her, and they're with an older woman. So that older woman is attached to one of them, and they're having a straight face kind of discussion, so they're all not happy about it. So I'm thinking to myself, go home. Leave now, (laughs) (laughs) you you bought these tickets but you're not obligated to stay. Leave, leave, I'm sending all those vibes. They sit down. (laughs) The whole second act, often the second act of a musical is more boring than the first. You know, the the, the whole denouement has come. This particular second act is great. It sustains (laughs) it till the end. And what's more, it actually has a morally uplifting end. They both are converted to love in the end love triumphs, they become good people, they <laughs> give up the larceny, they go to jail, rather than, you know, uh, happily, and then they convert the people in the jail to goodness. <laughs> it's got a good end, it's got a really good end on it. And the whole time, I'm aware that these big people are sitting <laughs> in front of me, completely unmoved, and everybody else applauding, laughing, falling down. They're sitting. It's as if black smoke is coming out <laughs> from know And I kept thinking to myself, Is this me? I'm imagining black smoke. If I didn't know their story, if I hadn't met her on the way into the toilet, then I wouldn't know about this. But I actually think we're antennae. I think we give out mood around this. You can feel the mood of people. When finally at the end, you know at the end of a musical curtain doesn't come down but the cast starts to come out in bunches and you realize this is the the end and you start applauding. So everybody starts applauding here. The dancers, here's the chorus. And so these three folks get up and go out and then here come the principals in, and that whole audience, as a body, stands up cheering. And I could feel in mean myself. Anyway, I felt free at that point to get up and, <laughs> and applaud because they weren't there, and they were there like moral police in front of me. That I, you know, could I be enjoying myself about this? So the question that I that I've been turning over in my mind for these few weeks is. Is there an improper? Should we? Is there such a thing as getting? Ah, is she politically correct and I am wrong? Do we ever laugh? Can we laugh at ourselves and say, "Look, we are idiotic," because really, that what I think what the play is is we are idiotic. We make fools of ourselves over wanting money. We go to all kinds of larcenous ends, and 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 um, in some way. Uh, belie our own true hearts, which in the end in that play, Win, um, that we're really, you know, we're we're remarkably diverse and funny in the ways that we are. All those mockings of sexualities, you know, it's a sweet way of saying, look, everybody's alive. (laughs) You know, let's laugh at ourselves instead of fight with ourselves. We're all alive. We're all people. Um... There's a way of looking at everybody fondly. It's so over the top, outrageous that the worst villains you feel you feel fond about. You know, everybody is looking it's looking dear in some kind of a way. Uh, there wasn't there wasn't a villain in it somehow. There wasn't a villain. Even these people weren't villains. It's a good mood play. Uh, <laughs> but no, seriously, I've been thinking about that. About if I laugh, will I forget to be serious? Will I forget that the that the, the you know that the war is not over, that um, that prejudice is still alive in our country, that every kind of xenophobia is still happening? I have three pieces of poetry that I want to read to you. More. This Pablo Neruda you've heard a lot. I carried around with me. You know there are certain things, when I, can't, when I go to teach all over, there, I don't take a lot of stuff with me because I, I figure out what I'm going to say uh, when I get there. But there are maybe a half a dozen pieces of paper that I pack in my suitcase and one of them is this Neruda poem. One of them is the Neruda poem. I will carry around that one by Suhail Hamad about please God let it not look like my brothers. Um, with me from now on probably. Now we will all count to 12 and we will all keep still. For once in the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales and the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fires, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. I want no truck with death. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count to twelve and you keep quiet and I will go. This is Yehuda Amichai, Israeli poet who died in the year 2000. I may I rest in peace. I am who I'm still living say May I have peace in the rest of my life. I want peace right now while I'm still alive. I don't want to wait like that pious man who wished for one leg of the golden chair of paradise. I want a four-legged chair right here, a plain wooden chair. I want the rest of my peace now. I have lived out my life in wars of every kind, battles within and without, close combat face to face. The face is always my own, my lover face, my enemy face. Wars with the old engines, sticks and stones, blunt acts, words, dull ripping knife, love and hate, and wars with newfangled weapons, machine gun, missile words, landmines exploding, love and hate. I don't want to fulfill my parents' prophecy that life is war. I want peace with all my body and all my soul. Rest me in peace. And the last is a little piece of story um, from uh, the a March issue this year of the New Yorker. A man named um, Aaron Naparstek um, lives in a third floor apartment of the Cabo Hill section of Brooklyn. And there's a lot of traffic outside and a lot of honking. And uh, the area on the streets just south of Atlantic Avenue is often jammed owing to the timing of various traffic lights so it tends to be one of the city's car horn hotspots. I had reached my limit, Naprastek, who is 31 and works as a website producer, said last week. He recalled that one car in particular, <laughs> all right, I'm reading it. This is Naprastek. One car in particular, a shitty little blue sedan, <laughs> was issuing forth a single sustained honk. After at least a minute of this, Naprostek got up from his desk and calmly calmly walked towards the kitchen thinking, if he's leaning on that horn when I get back, he's going to get it. (laughs) The honker was still leaning when Naprostek threw open his window. I want windshield, Naprostek vowed and hurled three eggs in quick succession down onto the blue sedan. (laughs) The first hit the trunk, the second the roof, third the windshield, just as the driver was getting out of the car. This is quote of talking. He was a fireplug, balding 40ish, a Brooklyn man of indeterminate ethnicity. He went ballistic. He yelled up at me, I see where you live blankety blank. I'm coming back tonight. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> he kept saying this over and over, I'm going to kill you, and then the other horns started blasting their <laughs> horns at him. After he drove away, Naprasek went on, I realized I am insane now. I have become the honking and the honking has become me. I cannot throw eggs. It is bad and wrong, but I can't do nothing either. That night to calm himself, he wrote about 20 haiku about honking, which he called honku. <laughs> <laughs> he made 50 printouts of each, numbering them, and in early January began affixing them to lampposts around the neighborhood. The first to appear was you from New Jersey honking in front of my house in your SUV. He found the act of posting this first honk through therapeutics, he posted some more. (laughs) Terrorism is a Lincoln Continental leaning on the horn. (laughs) Smoking cigarettes, blasting hot 97, futility honking. Oh, forget Enron, the problem around here is all the damn honking. One day he went out to put another round and discovered that there were new hanku on the lamppost composed by others. Soon the lampposts were wrapped in hanku by a variety of anonymous neighborhood hankuists. What keeps me from just pelting your hanku auto with rotting garbage? <coughs> That's a haiku by the way. We walk happily, you honk and snarl traffic, who gets there first? Us. Oh, Jesus Chrysler, (laughs) what's all the damned honking Ford? (laughs) Please shut the truck up. (laughs) 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 Through the winter there have been dozens of haiku which have helped give rise to a shadow anti-hunk movement. No doubt this has raised consciousness of the honking, Naprastek said. Literally, moments ago, there's a huge blast of honking, and I heard a guy yell, What's the point? <laughs> I looked outside, and he was walking down the street with his girlfriend, pointing to a sign on the street that reads, No honking, $125 penalty. Now, Naprastek is thinking of suing the Taxi and Limousine Commission over the decibel level of the horns on Ford Crown Victorious, that is, most cabs. He's also moving ahead with plans to blanket the neighborhood with honk cards, detachable messages like those tearaway help wanted tags that passerbys can hand to honkers as the need arises. <laughs> One such honk card reads, how would you like it if I walked up to your open window and shouted at the top of my lungs, honk. <laughs> that's actually something, that's something I've done before, actually, Naprostek said. You have to be careful. People go nuts. I honked the guy and he got so angry he was making gurgling sounds. <laughs> so I'm very glad to end on that because I, I have a sense that it really said, you know, in the end what's the choice? I have never been so angry that I've wanted to choose control a gun rather than a pen. That somehow we're going to have to take this anger, the kind of anger, ballistic on all levels, Ballistic-throwing eggs is the egg version of ballistic-throwing bombs. We get mad and we say, now I am so mad, I have to do the final, you know, now I'm too mad to say it and certainly too mad to write it in a poem. So somehow we have to keep telling each other and tell everybody that we meet, that there is no such thing as so mad that we can't tell it in a poem. Or the things that we tell three-year-olds, use your words. Come back to that. Use your words. Nobody can do anything until we all sit down and talk about it. Made a League of Nations in 1918. Now we're gonna talk about it. Made the um, United Nations, 1948. Now we're gonna talk about it. We didn't learn to talk about it yet. We have all those people talking about it and say, now it's so bad, we'll just kill each other first, then we'll talk about it. It has to be another way. And we have to believe it. Every time that I get mad and, and undo it in my own heart, I am contributing to the war effort. I think I, I'd like to read you a new end. We'll make up a new end. You make a new end on it. Mine has to do with what I am doing for the war effort. You know. That we here highly resolve that these dead and everyone currently dying shall not have died or die in vain, and that I, lend it for yourself in your own mind. Thank you.